morning. God's got a great week in store for us. It's really special. Sergey, Tanya, Sophia, and your team, what a great blessing to do this week together. Uh, we, a number of years ago, as Sergey said, our family did a mission trip over in Ukraine and Moldova and Russia, sharing uh, visionary parenting and, and visionary marriage. We had a more treacherous moment on that trip. Uh, they took very good care of us. The hospitality was, was wonderful, but there was a portion of the trip where we were, we were abandoned by our guides, and it was on the all-night train from Ukraine to Moscow. So our Ukraine team put us on a train and said, someone will meet you in Moscow after the overnight train. I'm like, okay, someone will meet us. And uh, we're, we're sleeping, quote-unquote, on the Russian train all night long, 5 a.m. on the door. I'm like, oh my goodness. I go look at the people. Huge man in a uniform. Oh Lord. You know, I've heard all the missionary stories, right? What's going to happen? I, I crack the little door open. He says, morning coffee? And uh, it was great. It was fantastic. So he was not there to arrest me. He was there to give me coffee. We had a, a wonderful time. Okay. Let me introduce my family to you here, at least for the picture. There is my wife, Amy. We are coming up on 25 years of marriage on August 13th. We are really, really close. And we've got these seven blessings in our life. Our W, Lissy, JD, Laney, Millie, Ray, and Rush. Boy, girl, boy, girl, girl, boy, boy. 22, 19. 17, 15, uh, 11, 9, and 5. Two college, two high school, two elementary, one kindergartner. And we are uh, thrilled to be all together this week. Now, my daughter, uh, here we go right there, sleepless in Scotland. She's on staff this summer. Scotty, maybe some of you know her. So she's been having a great time. Uh, we also added a nephew. We brought my 17-year-old nephew, Henry, this week. And we've got a super special, phenomenally awesome guest. My first time to introduce her to you, our W's fiance, Emily. Round of applause for Emily. We're so happy you're here with us. A week ago, Friday. So I've got the daughter-in-law to be. Emily, we're just so happy you're here with us this week. And uh, we love you. Let me uh, uh, introduce uh, a little bit about what we're going to be talking about this week. Uh, I want to do that just by sharing my family background and my testimony so you can get to know me just a, a little bit. So when I was born, grew up in Connecticut, neither one of my parents were Christians. I didn't come from any, like spiritual heritage, like seven generations of Gull Lake missionaries and all this kind of stuff. Uh, neither one of my parents were Christians. My mother was my father's fourth wife. My father was my mother's second husband. And when I was three months old, uh, God did a miracle in my mother's life, brought her to repentance of her sins and faith in Christ. And the Bible says she was born again. So when I was three months old, I got a new mom. And we started doing crazy religious stuff. Started praying before we ate, started to go into church on Sundays. Now, my dad was an atheist, and he thought that my mom had become like a Jesus freak person. And so he sort of doubled down on his uh, atheism and doubled down on his secularism. Uh, my mom led me to the Lord when I was a little boy, led my older brother to the Lord. But my parents got divorced when I was 15, after 18 years of marriage. My dad traveled for business uh, Monday through Friday most weeks. Turns out he had mistresses in different cities 
where he was traveling, and that brought then our family and my parents' uh, marriage uh, to an end. And it was really that uh, wound in my life and that trauma in my life that God used to give me a heart for families that were struggling, give me a heart especially for teenagers that were going through difficult times. So God called me into youth ministry. I left uh, Connecticut to come out to Illinois to go to Wheaton College. Amy and I met in, uh, in, in graduate school. 2004 was then a big turning point in my life. Amy and I had been married 10 years. We had four-ish children at the time. It kind of blends together a bit. And, uh, but I was a youth pastor for those first 10 years, as Sergey said. Got a couple of his older children in youth group. And so as a youth pastor, number one passion of my life is passing my faith to other people's children. So let's say you're the parents and grandparents at church. I want to help all your kids follow Jesus. So I'm going to pray with your kids. I'm going to read the Bible with your kids. I'm going to take them on retreats and mission trips. I'm going to do lock-ins with your junior hire. Horrible idea. (laughs) The name itself should tell you this is a bad thing. There's nothing good about a lock-in, okay? But I'm doing all this stuff, right, because I love young people and I want to see them follow Christ. It was a great uh, season of our, our ministry life, but the problem was I'm praying with other people's kids and I'm not praying with mine. I'm reading the Bible with other people's kids. I'm not reading the Bible with mine. I was this very passionate spiritual leader at church and very passive in my house. And so that summer, God brought me to a a place of repentance and brokenness. And as it says in Malachi 4 and Luke 1, turned my heart to the ministry of my family and just convicted me that what I had been doing is I had been putting my spiritual opportunities, that'd be church and community and all you people, spiritual opportunities in front of my spiritual responsibilities, the souls of the kids and my wife that God had entrusted to my, my care. One story from R.W. here. Uh, he was about three years old, and we were walking to church. Uh, we lived nearby church, and we were walking to church one day, and we see the church building about a block away. He says, is this where you live, Daddy? And we laugh a little, right? We can snicker, but you get in a car with me, I'll drive you three hours over to Wheaton, I'll show you the square foot of concrete where I was standing when my son said that to me. And it's interesting. See, I didn't live at church. I did not sleep at church except for the evil lock-in. I lived at home. But even at the age of three, my son could sense where dad's passion was, where dad's heart was, where dad's mission was. So for the last 15 years, our family's been on a, a, a journey Bumbling and stumbling along, learning what does it mean to live for Christ? And this is what we're going to talk about this week. What does it mean to live for Christ in the most important and most difficult place to be a Christian? Where is that? Most important, most difficult place to be a Christian? At home, right? In our family relationships. And we're going to give kind of special emphasis to to what would it look like if our families in the grace and the mercy of God as we fall short every day, if we live for Christ in our homes how God can use our families to pass faith in Christ through the future generations. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Many of the Psalms are written by David. This Psalm was written by one of David's worship leaders, a man named Asaph. 
And we'll start off, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. We'll look at verse 4 carefully, and then we'll do 5, 6, and 7. Psalm 78, beginning here in verses 1 through 4. Again, from this man Asaph, a worship leader in the ministry of David. says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. In other words, those who have passed the faith to us, we're not going to hide the glorious deeds of God from their descendants, but we will tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. So the first thing that we see is that the gospel message is passed generationally. And the engine that God created to pass the faith generationally is the family. The family is his primary institution for raising up the next generation to hear about Jesus, to receive Christ, and to follow him. Now, one of the great crises that has faced the church in the United States, especially toward the end of the 20th century, is we had a couple of generations that delegated the spiritual training of their children to the church. They dropped their kids off at Sunday school, they dropped them off at youth group, or they sent them to a Christian school, or they made sure they came to Gull Lake for a week every summer to take them to the professionals who would do the the heavy lifting spiritually to help their kids follow Christ, and mom and dad and grandma and grandpa would reinforce the message kids got from Sunday school and youth group. Now, in terms of Christian history and the biblical pattern, that's upside down and backwards. One of my mentors, Ben Freudenberg, said, for 1,900 years of Christianity, when it came to passing faith to kids, we were home-centered and church-supported. That the home was the centerpiece, the church was the support. In the 20th century, we flipped that around. We became church-centered, and by church-centered, even church-building-centered, and home-supported. So now the job of the Christian parent, rather than be the primary spiritual trainer of the child in the home, now the job of the Christian parent is we really need you to volunteer in Sunday school. Please volunteer in youth group. Because you see, Sunday school youth group's primary, and the family's the support. Now I love Sunday school and youth group. I love Go Lake and I love Christian education. But God designed those to be the vitamins in a child's life. The meal they're supposed to get at home. So here in Psalm 78, uh, God calls every one of us, this is not just a psalm for parents and grandparents, but every one of us to tell the coming generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord. What are we supposed to tell them? The glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, and the wonders he has done. Two big ways that we do that. The first way, the most important way, is that we open the Bibles in our homes. We read God's word in our homes because that's where we find the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, and the wonders he has done. Throughout the week, uh, uh, I'll be sprinkling in the different messages, kind of how to pray and read the Bible at home without killing each other. So we'll do some practical stuff. And every morning we get a chance, right? We get a, it's a brown sack of family worship. What do they call it? Big, what it? What does that stand for? Brown bag Bible study bonanzas, not brown sack of family worship. Okay. But we're going to, whatever. It's close. It's the same idea. 
And uh, so every morning we'll get a chance to practice opening up God's word in our homes with our families. But now the other thing that we do is we've got to open our mouths when it comes to telling our kids about the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, and the wonders he has done, is to tell our kids and grandkids the great things he's done in our lives, the great things he's done in our families, the moments in the generations of our family where God showed up and proved himself. As I was going through these these traumas in my family growing up, we got to see miracles. We got to see God prove himself in the midst of, of some darkness. Let me tell you two, two of those stories. One, at the time of my parents' divorce, uh, they decided to sell the house that I grew up in, and uh, I was going to live with my mom and my brother, so we needed to find a new place to live. My mom had not worked outside the home while I was growing up. She was a, a homemaker, so she didn't have any money on her own. So as far as like the, the settlement from the divorce, she got 50% of the house and that's pretty much it. So we had, had arranged to sell our house. We had to be out June 15th, which meant that we had to find a new place by April 15th to get things signed and two months of closing and all that stuff. And the Lord had uh, put it on my mom's heart to pray very specifically for some things that she felt like we really needed in a house. And it wasn't really crazy. She wanted three bedrooms, my mom and me and my brother. Uh, there, there were some weird things on the list, honestly, though. One of them was uh, she wanted it to have a walkout basement, okay, like a house on a hill kind of thing. She was a big gardener, and so she just liked to keep her gardening supplies. And you're nodding over here, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. And uh, so to be able to go in and out. The, the weirdest one, and maybe, tell me your name, sir. Jerome. Jerome. And maybe you're with me now since you're nodding. I don't know. Or you're just nods of affirmation in the morning. I don't know what that is, but the, uh, uh, she wanted it to face south. Big gardener, like her garden was her, her refuge, like her safe place, so she's going through the big trauma. I guess the, if you face south, the sun goes over the right way. You do flowers in the front and back. Who knew? And uh, you know, our house is a hospice for plants. They come to our house for a little while before they die. That's what we do. But my mom... My mom did things differently. This was her big deal. And um, so we begin praying for, for this list, six or seven things on this list. And sometimes we would find a house and it, it was really close. We're like, okay, Lord, thank you for providing. Uh, but then somebody would swoop down with their bag full of money and we, we'd lose it. So now it's April 14th. That's the day before we're supposed to have, have something. And a family from church calls and says, We've, we're selling. we heard you're looking for a house. We're selling our house. Would you like to come see it? I was on a mission trip in Washington, D.C., so my mother and my brother went to see the house. They pull up to the house, and it, it is lime green. But my mother had not specified color <laughs> on the prayer list, so God cannot be held responsible for that. And they get the tour, and as you can imagine, it's got everything that she's been praying for. And they start to talk about the price, and it's $30,000 more than my mom's got. And she's really not in a position to negotiate or anything. She just says, thank you very much. And they, they head home. Eight o'clock that night, the family calls again. They says, we'd like you to come back and see the house. My mom said, did you paint? And, uh, no. But it was a little weird. So she's like, yeah, we'll come back and see it again. And they're standing in the kitchen. And the, the story my mom relays to me, because again, I was out of town, is that the man's wife hands him a note. He reads the note 
And he says, the world would have us get as much as we can for this house, but we believe God wants you to have the house for what you can afford. And they get things going with the paperwork and get things signed. Now, that's miracle part A. Miracle part B, this was not a wealthy family. This is a three-bedroom house that they're selling. They're moving to Florida. And this was... Uh, a big deal because by giving us that $30,000, they no longer had the money they needed to fulfill their contract on their new house in Florida. A couple days later, their real estate agent calls and says, I don't know what happened, but the price of your house in Florida just went down $50,000. Folks, that's a miracle. And it's a miracle in my life when I'm wondering, God, have you forgotten about us? Have you abandoned us? And God's saying, I'm with you. Let me show you my might and the wonders I have done. And and tell this story now, right, to the coming generations. Let's go on to these next verses. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn, and they might arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Okay, verse 5, command that's specifically for fathers, for grandfathers, principally for all of us, but we've got to open our mouths and talk to our kids about the Lord, about his might, about Jesus. And what is God looking for? Okay, he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Why? It's not a trick question. That the next generation might know them. Hopefully that's obvious. We want our children to know and love Jesus more than we do. We want them to be more faithful to him than we have been. We want them to take the gospel farther into the world than we've taken it. Chuck Stecker's got a great phrase. He wants our ceiling to be our kid's floor. Do you get that? Our ceiling to be our kid's floor. In other words, all of us as parents wish we were giving more to our children by way of faith and virtue, right? We wish we were setting a better example of faith, a better example of virtue, but we're only giving them so much. So, kids, if you see any patience in my life, actually, that's a bad one. Uh, If you see any gentleness in my life, that's always like when I have people rank my fruits of the Spirit, it's always the lowest. So I don't bother asking people to rank them anymore because let's go. Um, But if you see any gentleness in my life, I I want that virtue to carry into your generation, Whatever sin and brokenness you see in my life, I want that to stay in my generation. There's certain things. By the way, all you teenagers out there, okay, lots of you junior hires and and high schoolers. One of the most, I think, important things for you to do as you get into those junior high and high school years is to really think carefully about your mother and your father, your grandmother, your grandfather. You can even get out a piece of paper, put a line down the middle. Virtues and character traits in my parents that I want to repeat in my generation. Write them down. Things that you see in your parents. I want to do that just like dad. I want to do that just like mom. Now on the other side of the page, virtues and character traits I want to leave, leave, leave in my parents' generation. I don't want to be like my dad in this area. I don't want to be. You're like, well, that doesn't sound very honoring. Listen, ask your parents. There's things in our lives we don't want you to take. 
We don't want to pass them to you, please, okay? Let your eyes observe our ways and don't do it like us. Now, kids, I'm sorry, none of you are being raised by Jesus, right? So all your parents are messed up. So they've, they're a mixed bag. So there's things that we want to leave in their, uh, in their generation. But okay, here we go. So that the next generation might know them, but it doesn't stop there. That the, uh, even the children, where am I? Even the children yet unborn. So our prayer as parents and grandparents, our, our mission is not just to see our kids follow Christ, but that they would lead our unborn grandkids to follow Christ. Now, one thing I want you to see in this passage, God calls people who are not born yet children. He calls people who are not born yet children. He knows them even before they're conceived, the Bible says. He knows them even before they're conceived. And then when they're conceived, he knits them together in their, in their mother's womb. This is such a, a vital issue for the people of God today in our country. And the Holy Spirit is stirring something right now. Over these last 12 months, there is more courage, there is more boldness from God's people doing what is necessary to protect babies in the womb doing what's necessary to provide for those moms and dads that are, that are in crisis. Now, this is a sermon for, for another day, but does anybody know who the first person was who recognized Jesus come to earth as Messiah? Anybody know the first person to recognize Jesus when he, as the Messiah when he came? John the Baptist, right? You remember Mary and Jesus walk into the room. Well, Mary walks. Jesus is, is riding, okay? He's, he's in Mary's womb. Mary and Jesus walk into the room. John is in the womb of Elizabeth. And when Jesus uh, walks in, uh, what does John do? Leaps for joy. Because he knows that the Savior is here. Sermon for another day. Let's keep going. Verse 6. That the next generation might know them even the children yet unborn, and they might arise. Who is now arising? My unborn grandbabies are now arising and telling the great and glorious deeds of the Lord to their children. Who's that? That's my unborn great grandbabies, okay? So that they, who's the they? My unborn great-grandbabies should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. One of the themes that I'm going to be sharing with you throughout the week that God wants for every one of his people is that we have to have multi-generational vision for our lives. You've got to have multi-generational vision for your life. That is, you think about Jesus' call. Jesus says, go and make disciples. That part of that call is a multi-generational call. He wants our lives to continue to ripple through future generations long after we're home in heaven. Now, I love this phrase, that they, now the they again is my great-grandchildren, unborn, that they would set their hope in God. Not just that they would know the facts about God, not just they would know the truth about God, the contents of the gospel, but they'd set their hope in him. They'd trust him. I tell you, a scripture that's been convicting me lately as a father, we've got these two college kids ready to launch into the world, and then I've got two high schoolers, 
getting ready for that next step. And if, you, if you've been in that phase or you are in that phase, you know the stress of um, test scores and, and uh, scholarships and finances and choosing a major and sports and all those things. So the thing that's been convicting me, God's been asking me, Rob, do you really believe what I said? This is what Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That whole chapter is about your earthly needs, right? Your earthly needs, what are you going to eat, what are you going to wear, where are you going to live, all the stuff of earth. Jesus wraps it all up by saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God's going to take care of all your earthly needs. That's what he's saying. So the question for me as a dad, do I really believe that? It's easy to say, oh, yeah, sure, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. No, like, really? Do I really believe that if my kids will follow after Christ and that they will want nothing more than to serve him and please him with their lives, that God will take care of the college, he'll take care of the money, he'll take care of the job, he'll take care of all that stuff that he already knows that they need. Because if I really believe that, if you really believe that as a father or mother or grandfather or grandmother, it will change the way you parent. Because more than anything else, you're going to want your kids to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, trusting and believing that God is going to take care of everything else that they need. And, and that's the big stuff, but it's also the, the little stuff as well. Um, our, I keep picking on our W here. But uh, another story from more recent life, our W plays college baseball at Olivet Nazarene University. And he, uh, a couple seasons ago, was going through a little bit of a, a batting slump a few days where he wasn't hitting the ball as well as he wanted to. And so I said to him, I think we were on the phone, I said, hey, RW, I just want you to know I'm praying for you, praying for God to give you confidence at the plate, help you see the ball well, help you get a hit tonight. He said, well, Dad, thanks for praying for my hits, but I'd rather you pray for my heart. Good point, son. Well, uh, well played. I'll include that in a seminar at some point. But you, you see what I mean? See, he's like, you know, am I going to find my value and my worth in hitting baseballs or am I finding my value and worth in Christ and in his love for me and not getting sidetracked on whether I'm succeeding or failing the way I should or I feel like I should uh, on, this, on this daily basis. Now, one more thing before I, I close us and pray. One of the reasons why this psalm is so powerful is that this vision that Asaph gives for family, this multi-generational kingdom vision came to pass in his family. So Asaph, this man, wrote this around 1,000 uh, B.C. And 75 years after he wrote this, in 2 Chronicles 2014, King uh, Jehoshaphat is under invasion. The Spirit of God comes upon Jehaziel, who's the great-grandson of Asaph, who rose up and prophesied, he said, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. The battle is not yours, but God's. And God delivers the victory. 200 years after that, King Hezekiah calls on the sons of Asaph, the descendants of Asaph, to prepare the temple for the worship of God. 100 years after that, 
time of great spiritual darkness uh, under King Josiah, the, the Bible was discovered again. The Word of God is discovered again. And King Josiah calls the people together to celebrate the Passover uh, according to what was written in the law of Moses. He puts together this phenomenal worship gathering. This is Second Chronicles 35. And who are the musicians? Guess. Descendants of Asaph. Another century later, in the days of Nehemiah, the exiles return home to Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah tells us about the faithful remnant who returned. Nehemiah 7.44, he says 148 worship leaders were among the group, descendants of Asaph. Generation after generation after generation. This man's ministry, this man's vision, God brought it about. And what we're going to talk about this week is how that kind of fruit can come from your life. How that kind of fruit can come from you bumbling and stumbling forward in the grace and mercy of God in your family. Now listen, every one of our families is struggling. Every single one. You put a bunch of sinners together in a thing called a family, you get a lot of sin. That's the way it works. We were watching a movie. It's kind of a silly movie. It was a diary of a wimpy kid. Yeah? Long haul. There's a great quote. This little boy says this. He says, I am all for the idea of family, but this combination of people is just not working. <laughs> Isn't that perfect? <laughs> I think that's really the Christian position on family, right? God, I approve of your institution of the home, but why you put us together, I don't know. So listen, see, Satan and the demons understand that God advances his kingdom generationally through the home. So they strike the base. They strike manhood, womanhood, marriage, family, and the parent-child relationship. So one of the messages that's going to come through all week long as we, we spend time together is that there's hope for every messed up struggling family. Raise your hand if you're a messed up struggling family. Good, that would be you. And the other thing is that in almost every family... There's at least one son or daughter, grandson or granddaughter, that's far from God. And the message over and over this week is that it's never too late, never too late, never too late. Never too late for God to use you as mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, brother, sister, to pray, to share the gospel, and to encourage a miracle in that family member's life. So I really believe God's got a special week in store for us. I don't think this is going to be business as usual the opportunity that we're going to have to connect with Mission Eurasia and hear what God is doing on the other side of the world, how our families can be a part of that, and how God wants to bring some healing to some brokenness in our families, but how he also wants to give us greater multi-generational vision, which gives us the necessary endurance to keep stepping forward in the grace and mercy of God for the sake of the generations to come. So I'm going to pray for our, our week and our time, and Tim's going to come back up and, uh, and dismiss us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there's uh, none of us that are here by accident this week. You had this planned out for us, and we're here for some relaxation and some fun and some connection and opportunities to bring the generations of our family together, but I, I am convinced 
that you brought us here because you want this week to be a marker of change in our families, for those of us that are married in our marriages, that you do a work of healing and forgiveness in areas and relationships that are family that are broken. You do a work in the lives of our kids and grandkids this week, that they would come away from this week loving Jesus more than ever. And that as parents and grandparents, you'd give us uh, just greater vision for our ministry in the home and that we would not put our spiritual opportunities in front of our spiritual responsibilities anymore. And so we lift up our hearts to you, our, our messed up families to you, and ask for your grace and for your mercy and your help through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.